After feeding 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two small fish, Christ told his disciples to collect all that remained, that none be lost. Having fed the hungry multitude with physical bread, Christ also fed them the bread of life. His words were to be remembered, contemplated and shared, and no fragment of truth was to be left behind. I'm Laura. And I'm Bill, Laura's father. And this is Gathered Fragments. In the previous episode, we looked through the Bible to find out what happens when you die. We saw that there is no consciousness in death, but death, as Jesus described concerning Lazarus, is like a sleep. Yet what happens next? Of course, we know that the saved that are alive at Christ's return will meet the Lord in the air, together with the saved who are resurrected from the grave. But what about the lost? Will they, as some churches teach, be cast into a lake of fire and burn for eternity? Yes, thank you, Laura. The teaching of um, an eternally burning hell is a, arguably the most controversial teaching in script in the Bible. It was taught a lot more than it is today. Today, a lot more evangelicals and other Christians are seeing the error of this of this teaching. But uh, early times, uh, it was taught by a lot of churches, a lot of people, and a lot of good people, I may add, but nonetheless. And there are some verses that seem to teach this. Mm. But for me, the ramifications of this teaching are terrible. I cannot think of a worse doctrine there is in Christianity than to teach that God will burn the wicked for eternity, but they never die, but will just suffer for eternity. The very thought is absolutely horrific, totally destroys the character of God's love. It makes the most evil people on earth seem more compassionate than a supposedly loving God. Mm. Terrible and this teaching. is a God that says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Yeah. And it's a teaching that has caused many to become infidels and caused many infidel writers to attack the Bible and God's word. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's one that we need to understand. And, and as we've said many times in these podcasts, every teaching in the scripture, rightly understood, uplifts the character of God and his love. Mm-hmm. But every wrongly understood teaching impacts negatively upon God and his character. So where did this teaching actually originate? Yeah, as we've been seeing often with other teachings we've seen as with uh, predestination and born sinners, etc., or original sin teaching, it actually comes from paganism. In fact, it may even earlier, but the origins I, I trace to the teaching of eternally burning hell goes back to about the 4th, even 5th century BC, Greek philosophers like Plato, uh, Socrates, and, and Plato after him, and uh, of course Greek mythology in general of a Hades, an, an eternally burning place where the wicked would go and suffer, and Tartarus where others would be punished you know, with fire forever. Mm. Later on it was picked up by the Christian church around the 2nd century, Justin Martyr and Polycarp, and then of course 5th um, century you have Augustine. Same we saw with Augustine with predestination, as we saw with original sin. Teachings he picked up from pagans or from Manichaeans who claimed to be Christians, but they were really pagans. And it's the same with this teaching. It goes back to Greek mythology and pagan teachings. And they are, that's exactly what they are. They are myths. They are myths. There is no place called Tartarus or, or Hades where people are being burned continually. Hmm. 
And I suppose they were looking at verses like Revelation, where it says, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night. There's a couple of others I've got here, one from Matthew 25, 46, which says that these shall go away into everlasting punishment. And again in Mark 9, 43, it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Yeah, yeah. And um, we'll look at some of those terms in those verses, particularly the last one you just mentioned in Mark. That's a particularly good one, I think, for actually understanding the truth. A principle we need to understand in, in Bible study is it's true that we can read certain passages as the ones you just quoted and gain a particular understanding from them. However, if that understanding contradicts what the Bible teaches on the same subject in other passages, then you have a dilemma. They have to harmonize. And so the weight of evidence has to be what the Bible teaches from the Old and New Testaments, what those words mean in the original meaning, the Greek and the Hebrew words, how they're used in their context, and then we'll come to a more consistent understanding of what the prophets are bringing out. The writers of the Bible were all inspired by God. And so even if, say, Mark is writing it this way, he can't be meaning something that's contrary. totally contrary to another writer of the Bible Certainly if not. they're inspired by the same spirit. Certainly not. So perhaps he wrote it in a way that can be misconstrued, but in Certainly. reality, this is a significant yeah. doctrine. They have to be united on it. Absolutely. And, and let's remember, they were Hebrews. All the Bible writers, or exception of maybe Nebuchadnezzar and possibly Luke, all the Bible writers were, were Hebrew. And Hebrews have the right understanding of death. They do not believe in an eternally burning hell. Mm. So, of course, they would be consistent with each other. Um, so, yeah, that's a yeah. very so important it's more, point. it's more finding out, well, what did mm. he mean? What did he yes. really mean? And we can find that out by looking at other scriptures. Mm. And the understanding of the immortality of the soul is what leads to the understanding of eternally burning hell. Mm. You don't have one without the other. There would be no teaching of eternally burning hell if you did not believe the error of the immortality of the soul. Because many believe the soul, can, even after you die, the soul continues to live, therefore it goes to some place of eternal punishment, you see. And so as we correctly, through the scriptures in our previous study, saw what happens when one dies, they lose all consciousness, they have no more thoughts under the sun, etc. We can rightly then interpret what the meaning of hell is in the Bible. Mm. For example, in the Old Testament, one word that is used for hell repeatedly is the word in Hebrew, Sheol. And in the New Testament, there, there's more than one word, but the most common one is Hades. And they both mean simply the grave. That's what they mean. Over and over again, though, without wasting time, we could look at dozens and dozens of passages. But that's what it means. It means the grave, not some place where you continue your existence. And here's a good illustration of that. Look at the 16th Psalm, verse 10. Wonderful prophecy regarding Christ. And many would have thought this was in reference, at least before the cross and resurrection, many would have thought this was in reference to King David. Psalm 16, verse 10. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Notice who the author is? It's David. David. And so many would have thought in his day, he maybe would have been speaking of himself. But now notice at Pentecost, after the resurrection. Notice Peter is going to quote that exact passage you read. Now when he said, thou shalt not leave my soul in hell, the Hebrew is, thou shalt not leave my soul in Sheol. 
That's what David's saying. And of course, we know that was Christ speaking, because look at how Peter uses it now in, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 31. The New Testament word here is Hades, but we're going to see that both Hades and Sheol means the grave. He's seeing this before. That's David. He's seeing this before. Spake of the resurrection of Christ, mm. that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Absolutely. And we know that Christ did not remain in the grave nor see corruption. Mm. We can clearly see from both these passages that it's simply in reference to the grave. Christ did not remain in the grave. He did not remain in the tomb. But David certainly did. And that's actually the point that Peter's bringing out there, that that prophecy was in regards to Jesus. Notice, for example, as well, Revelation 20 and verse 3. This is after the millennium, when the wicked are going to be resurrected for the final time to be destroyed. Again, notice the reference to the grave. I'm sorry, 20 verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. So here... Timing is important without going into it at this point, but the early verses will clearly show you the righteous are with Christ. The second coming has taken place in chapter 19. He's king of kings and lord of lords. They're with Christ. They reign for a thousand years. And verse 6 tells you that the dead live not again until a thousand years were passed. So that's very important to see that. The passage you just read is the second resurrection, the resurrection of the wicked. And it says, what does it say? The sea gave up. Imagine how many. How many over the years have perished in the sea? It's got to be millions and millions of people, if not more. You know, from, from the ancient times, how many yeah. shipwrecks, how many drownings. Battles. It just, yeah, battles. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Millions and millions of people. And, and, and that's, that's the grave. The sea is the, the grave. It's, the, mm. it's where they perished. And now, notice it says the sea gave up what? The living? The dead. Mm. Because this is the, this is the whole point. If you believe you don't really die, but you go somewhere, if we're talking about the wicked here, of course, because they're going to be judged now and destroyed. If we believe the wicked, when they die, go somewhere and burning forever, then how can the sea give up the dead? Yeah, they're already gone. How can hell and death give up the dead? Yeah, they're, they're, just, they're living. They're not dead. So it seems to be two ideas. There's the idea that as soon as you die, you either go to heaven or hell, or the idea that yes, yes. after Christ returns and you're resurrected, you can be cast into hell, and then some people believe that you're burning eternally there, and some people believe you don't. Yes, that's right. The reason people believe that way is because they believe that the, the soul is immortal and it's separate. It can maintain a separate existence from the physical body. Mm -hmm. However, we're reading here that the sea gives up the dead, not the living. And we saw, as I said in the previous study, that you have no consciousness after death, etc. You have no more knowledge of anything under the sun. Uh, we saw with Lazarus that he was dead. And Jesus called him for four days, and yet Jesus called him forth, and he told his disciples that he was asleep. Mm. The point I wanted to bring out with this passage simply was that Sheol in the Old Testament means the grave. Hades in the New Testament is not some place of burning, but simply the grave. And and Christ's body was not left in Hades. That's what Peter is saying. Mm. And Lazarus, incidentally, he didn't say, no. oh, I went to heaven, or That's oh, I went to hell. Nor did Jesus call him to come down, but he asked him to come forth, mm. commanded him to come forth. And he was seeing where the dead are, whether in the sea or in, in hell, which is the grave. That's simply what it means. For example, notice also the 89th Psalm in verse 48. This also is showing us how the hell simply means the grave. What man is he that liveth, 
and shall not see death. Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? Selah. Again, we see that death simply is the grave. Once again, we see that it's not a separate existence, but David simply asking there, what man is it that will not see death? Mm. Of course, unless you're alive when the Lord returns. That's the lot of every man, good or bad. There's another meaning for hell, apart from the, the main one being the grave, and that is, this is an interesting one. This is what you referred to earlier. Look at Second Peter 2 verse 4. Some of our hearers may be a little puzzled with this one, but nonetheless, it's, it's interesting to look at. The word here is not Hades, it is Tartarus. And again, in Greek mythology, Tartarus was a place where evil monsters and other more wicked people are sent to burn for long periods or forever. Again, it's Greek mythology nonetheless, but, but notice what Peter is saying in regards to the fallen angels. Second Peter 2 and verse 4, and the word here for hell is Tartarus, it's not Hades. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved unto judgment. That is not some symbolism. That means what it says. That is literal. That is a place where Peter says God has delivered a lot of the demons, and they're waiting, uh, and they're imprisoned there until judgment. Mm. I mean, that's clearly what the passage is saying. Now we can try and not accept that or get around it, but that's what the passage is saying. But we can't give further evidence. It also doesn't say that this fire there it just says delivered them into chains of darkness. Yep. And again, the word is hell, but mm. like I said, it's a different word. It's a word. different word. I'm pretty sure this is the only place this word is used in the New Testament. Look at 8.31. This is the demons that were, that were commanded out of the possessed man. And look what they say to Jesus. Luke 8 verse 31. This, this lines up, sorry, this lines up perfectly with what we just read in Peter. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. Yeah. Again, this is a literal place, and the demons have been exercised out of the man, and they're beseeching Jesus not to be sent into the deep. That word deep there is abyss. Same word used in Revelation 20 verse 3 as the bottomless pit. It's a place. And this is the same place Peter is talking about where he called it Tartarus, or a place of, of darkness and imprisonment of chains, etc. It's a place they certainly did not want to go to. Wouldn't make no, if this was not a literal place, it would not make any sense at all what Peter and the demons there are saying, asking Jesus. So this is another meaning for hell. Of course, that's not so much in reference to us because that's in reference to demons, but all I'm showing is that primarily the word means the grave. Another meaning here can be a place of imprisonment for demonic hosts. And there's another meaning. It can mean the lake of fire. In fact, 12 times in the New Testament, the word hell means Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is a Hebrew word very, very familiar with the Jews in Jesus' time. Um, you quoted from Mark 9 earlier, Laura, and we're going to look at that now. I wouldn't mind going back a little bit into the history of Gehenna, but not to take up too much time. But Jeremiah talks about it. Josiah cleansed the place. It was a place where they would sacrifice children to Moloch and other false gods. A lot of human sacrifices took place there. It was a place of terrible atrocities. And in Jesus' day, it became Gehenna, which was just outside of Jerusalem. It was a place where you could, you could call it the local rubbish tip. And two things Gehenna had always, 24 hours a day. It was two things, fire and worms or maggots, because maggots feed upon 
dead carcasses and dead bodies, rotting flesh. And they would cast rubbish there to burns in order to not spread disease, and they would cast dead animals and bodies there as well. Now Gehenna's 12 times is translated as hell. Why? Notice how Jesus uses the terminology of Gehenna now to teach the total destruction of, of the sinners. Now when you read this passage, it's Mark 9, verses 43 to 48. And three times you'll read the word hell. Now if you read the word hell, if you read it as Gehenna, which is the original, notice how much more sense it makes, especially what Jesus is trying to bring out here. Mark 9, 43 to 48. And this was one of the passages you quoted earlier, the objections as far as, you know, being a place of eternal fire or uh, that never goes out mm-hmm. or can never be quenched. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into Gehenna, into the fire that never shall be quenched, mm. where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into Gehenna, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into Gehenna fire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Thank you. Now, notice it says the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not repeatedly says that. Yeah, three times. Yeah. Now, when Jesus is saying this, every single person listening to him know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about Gehenna, the place where they would have visited themselves, where they know of, where you can smell burning flesh, where yeah. you see the worms and the maggots. Mm. Now, he's not talking about the local rubbish, tip. He's talking about the destruction of the wicked. He's saying you're better off cutting off your hands and feet or anything that caused you to sin than enter into internal damnation. That's what he's talking about. And he's using that place to bring it vividly to their minds of how serious a matter it was. Now, why is this? This is extra interesting because we've seen that hell means the grave, predominantly. It can mean a place where the demons are imprisoned, and it can mean the lake of fire. In fact, 12 times this word is used in the New Testament, Gehenna, and, and, and translated as hell. Now, Christ is trying to describe to them the fate of the lost. Remember I said earlier that without immortality of the soul, you will not believe in eternal burning hell. They go together. When we object to those who teach you, your soul lives on, we say, but hang on. The Bible says you go from dust to dust, that, you, that there'll be nothing left, you return to ashes, etc. And of course, those others agree. They say, yes, yeah, certainly we agree with that. That's your body, the physical body, but your soul doesn't. Your soul doesn't. And they, so they teach a separation of the soul and the physical body. But Jesus says here more than once, if thy eye offend thee, 37, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes be cast into hellfire. You see, they teach it's only spirits that are burning mm, in hellfire. But this is a physical body that yeah. attend, goes he's, into he's heaven. He's teaching hands, feet, eyes. Mm. See, it's, it's, it's the body and soul all together be burned up. That's the first point. But secondly, what Christ is teaching here is the fate of the wicked, not when they die. Because again, others believe that when you die, as you said earlier, you either go to paradise or to hell or maybe even purgatory somewhere else. But you continue to live on even though you died in this world physically. Mm. But you continue to live on a separate existence. Immediately. In 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 your so-called separate soul or spirit. Uh, As we're seeing here, 
Jesus is not separating the two, but physically your eyes, your hands, and your feet can t- all together will go into this, this fire, mm. which never is quenched. And he's talking about the destruction of the wicked. That's what he's referring to. But he's using that vivid example that they could all relate to to bring to make them understand that. For and example, also having that physical body to go into heaven at the same time. Because that's why it says better yes. for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye. Yeah. And so we know the Lord is describing the fate of the lost, but it doesn't take place when you die. We saw that in the previous study of when you die, you just simply go to sleep and you're waiting the resurrection. Mm. Either the resurrection of the just or of the damned, which we'll see as well in a moment. Look at Revelation 21, verse 8. This is the resurrection of the damned, the wicked, which we saw earlier. It takes place a thousand years later, after the Lord's second coming. And this is that lake of fire that Christ was vividly trying to represent through Gehenna. Revelation 21 and verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Very important that notice it's the lake of fire is going to destroy them. It's called the second death because everyone's resurrected from the first death. It's asleep, whether you're righteous or wicked. Yes, there's a thousand years between those two resurrections, but everyone's resurrected from it. And then they meet their final destiny, either to be with the Lord and I'm talking about the dead here, because there's those who are alive when the Lord returns, the righteous, they don't see death. But those who do die, it's only a temporal death, whether you're righteous or wicked. When the wicked are risen, it's describing the characters of some of these people. Jesus says that they'll be cast into the lake of fire, and then he calls it the second death. There's no coming back from this. Mm. There's no continual burning. It's a second death. They die for good. Again, same passage, look at chapter 20, verse 12 to 15, again describing the same scene. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Here we see another meaning for, for hell, which is simply the lake of fire, the eternal destruction of the wicked after the millennium. Again, there is no reference there or, uh, to them maintaining a separate existence. It's the second death. They are destroyed once and for all. Look at John 5. 28 and 29, Jesus, Jesus mentions the two resurrections here. We just saw the second there where it takes place in Revelation. One's a blessing and one is a, a condemnation, of course. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So notice it says all which are where? In the grave. Mm. All they which are in hell or in the grave, they come forth. In other words, they're risen from that grave. Yeah. That resting place. If their soul isn't in the grave, then what do they go back into the grave? Exactly. It doesn't make sense. All which are in the grave, all which are dead, they come forth in the resurrection, either to resurrection of life or of damnation. Yeah, of damnation. 
and we saw it in Revelation 20, uh, verse 8, and uh, 21, verse 8, and Revelation 20, 12 to 15, that that's the second resurrection, or the one of the wicked. But, um, of course, they cast into the lake of fire. That's the resurrection of damnation the Lord's referring to there. So, in all these passages we're looking at, the meaning of hell is the grave. It's a place of where demons are imprisoned, or it's the lake of fire where, they, where, they, where the wicked meet their final extermination. None of these passages give any reference at all to a place where you continually burn forever, mm. but simply where you're consumed, where you're destroyed, or where you rest in your sleep, or where, as a demon, they're held prisoners. These are the three predominant meanings of hell in the Scripture, and none of them have any reference to a, someone continuous, continuing a separate existence and suffering and burning forever. Where was hell referred to as sleep? No, no. Is, uh, sleep is death. Yeah. Hell is just the place or the grave. That's where you die, where you sleep, in the grave, in the soil, in the, in the water, in the sea, whatever, mm. wherever you've perished. But you can turn to the dust and, and, and remain like that until called forth, one of those two resurrections where you're, where you're resurrected to the state you were at, your death. If a wicked man dies, old of old age, they will be risen at the age that they died. But the righteous, they are risen not at age where they were sickly and dying and, and, and uh, infirmed, but to the glory of resurrection, you know, glorified humanity, mm. depending on which one you're in. depends on how you come forth, but both are asleep in the grave. And that's what hell simply means over and over again. That's what we saw with Peter and Jesus. Thou shalt not leave my soul in Hades. And he did not see corruption, you know. He mm-hmm. did not corrupt. He did not return to, uh, to dust. God raised him. But the, as I was saying, the Hebrews had the correct understanding is regarding both what happens when one dies and the meaning of, of, the, of the grave or hell. Look at the 37th Psalm. This too is a, a beautiful passage. Again, emphasizing what I'm saying about the Hebrews themselves, how they understood this clearly. All the prophets, you, can, you could see this. Psalm 37, 9, 10, and 11. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Now, if the wicked continue a separate existence, how can the Bible continually say they shall not be? Mm. You consider the place where they shall not be. It wouldn't say that. Because they, they, they are still being. Yeah. Albeit in a terrible state, but they are still living. They're suffering. The Bible is very explicit here. And this is why I kept saying that the Hebrews understood this. This is their prophets. This is David himself. You will consider his place, he shall not be. He says it twice. You shall diligently consider. But then he says, look at the contrast, the meek, they shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Now, this is interesting. Jesus said this as well, that the meek would inherit the earth. Peter tells us that, the, that God will make a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And we'll look at a passage from Isaiah later which says the same. Now, if earth is where the, those who die are burning forever, whether it's underground or whatever, but they're continually burning, Forever, if that's what hell is, how can the earth be made new? How can the meek inherit the earth if it is a place of eternal damnation mm. and suffering? You can't have it both ways. One yeah. has to end. 
And this is what it's saying here, that you'll consider their place, it shall not be. Look at verse 20, same page, same chapter. And it's also, I know this is kind of a different topic, but when Revelation talks about the fires purifying the earth yeah, so exactly. that then the New Jerusalem can come exactly. down. Yes. The whole point is the fires eventually come to an end. Absolutely. The earth is purified. Sin and sinners must be destroyed and, and be purified. And it's over. Yeah. The past world of sin yeah. and destruction is gone. What kind of heaven could it be here on earth? Because that's what it will be after the millennium. It will be heaven on earth, the New Jerusalem, the saints. And yet in your minds you're perceiving that there's the wicked below there somewhere. Loved ones, friends. Yeah, that would just be abhorrent. That are forever screaming in torture. How on earth can someone contemplate that? Mm. Look at verse 20. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume. Into smoke shall they consume away. What does consume away mean? That they continue to live? No. It's even giving you the description as the fat that is melted off the, the carcass of a lamb. They're consumed. There'll be, there'll be no more. Mm. And God's judgment is meted out. And you know, the Bible says in Romans 6 23, the wages of sin is death. And it means it. And then that's talking about the second death, as we saw in Revelation. This is the second death, the lake of fire. But the gift of God is eternal life. It's contrasted. One, you live for eternity, the righteous, and the wicked, their wages or their reward is, is death. Mm, and it's eternal death. So some of the some of the objections or some of the passages that we looked at earlier, or even the terms like forever or everlasting. Shall, everlasting or five shall not be quenched was one that you mentioned particularly. In fact, we saw that in Mark chapter nine with Jesus. We don't need to go there, but the word forever in Jonah chapter two, verse six, Jonah is in the belly of the of the whale or the great fish. And he actually uses the word forever, that he was in there forever, yet he was in there three days. It seemed like forever to him, and it certainly would have been for anyone. But uh, here we see that the word doesn't necessarily have to mean, as we understand it today, that it's, it's, it's eternal. Mm. This is a good one. In Jeremiah 17, fire not quenched. This is another term that is used that people interpret to mean that they'll be burning forever or the fire will never be quenched. Jeremiah here, God tells him to go to the gates of, the, of Jerusalem and talk to the people coming in and out because what the people were doing was they were profaning the Sabbath and they were selling goods and then buying goods on the Sabbath. And we know Jeremiah was, uh, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. So God sends him this warning for Jeremiah. He was to stand at the gates and give him this warning. We need to read from 19 all the way to 25 to get some context. Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, whereby the kings of Judah come in, and by the which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say unto them, Hear ye the word of the Lord, ye kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that enter in by these gates. Thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourselves, and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, neither do ye any work, but hallow ye the Sabbath day, as I commanded your fathers. But they obeyed not, neither inclined their ear, but made their necks stiff, that they might not hear, nor receive instruction. And it came to pass, if ye diligently hearken unto me, saith the Lord, to bring in no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day, to do no work therein, 
Then shall there enter into the gates of this city kings and princes, sitting upon the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. So the Lord appealing to the citizens and telling them what would, what would happen if they would not listen, but if they would, if they would reform, if they would keep the Sabbath holy, kings and princes would reign forever on the throne of Jerusalem. But we know, of course, that was not the case. But if they would not, look at verse 27, look at the warning he gives, and this is where we see shall not be quenched regarding the fire. But if you will not hearken unto me to hallow the Sabbath day, and not to bear a burden, even entering in at the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then will I kindle a fire in the gates thereof, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Yeah, now, if we're going to use the term shall not be quenched to mean that it's going to burn forever, Nebuchadnezzar certainly destroyed city uh, Jerusalem. He burnt it to the ground, especially the temple. The Lord said the fire would not be quenched, but it certainly was. So you're saying that when Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem, it was a fulfillment of this verse. Well, that's exactly what God warned them. If they would not reform their ways, he would kindle a fire there that would would burn and devour the palaces, etc. in Jerusalem and would not be quenched. And that's exactly what happened when the Babylonians came. Mm. Exactly what happened. They besieged the city, etc. And when they broke through. But the point I want to make is that when the Lord warned it, a fire that would not be quenched, the fire did go out. Yeah. But not until it had, it had accomplished what God had said would happen, which was destroy, bring destruction upon the city and its palaces. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. Mm. And isn't the same... This can't is why the they same... had to rebuild the temple, remember in, in, in um, Nehemiah's day, etc. Mm. Can't the same also be said about Sodom and Gomorrah? Oh, we're about to see that one now, yes. Mm. That's the most important of all. So, but we're seeing that the term forever doesn't necessarily mean... Without end. Without like... end. We're seeing the term fire that cannot be quenched doesn't mean that the fire is going to burn without end, because here it certainly did. And now, What does it mean then? Well, it, it means that it accomplishes what? Like what, nothing will stand in the way of it, no, basically. No, no, it's, un, it's unstoppable, it's yeah. unquenchable until it, uh, until it fulfills the work that God has it to do. Mm. When the sin and sinners are no more, when they are ashes under your feet, there's no need for it to continually burning, there's nothing left. Mm. And this is the point. This is why you can have a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and earth, and a new Jerusalem on earth. Because, as you were saying yeah. before, the fire of the Lord that destroys sin and sinners will have quenched and purified this world, and made it, and then it can be made new. And again. nothing is going to prevent that from yeah. taking its course. And in fact, there'll be no more. You just sparked a thought in my mind that there'll be no more memory of sin or sinners. The only memory of this former world in the new heaven and earth will be the, the prince in Christ's hands and in his side. Mm. Now, if there's an eternally burning hell that never ends, there'll be plenty of memory of... Maybe of not memory, but reminders. Reminders, mm. yeah. yeah. Terrible, we'll, terrible reminders. Mm. You know, Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, right at the very end, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And how true is that? But if suffering and torture, etc., continues for eternity, then... It's never really destroyed. No. This is a really interesting verse because it says that the concept of death is destroyed because in heaven there is no more death. Nothing will ever die again. And how can death be destroyed if people are constantly constantly suffering and tormented? That's right. They're constantly dying, like they're basically eternally dying. Then death isn't destroyed. And, you know, in, in that sense, 
sin and suffering would actually have the victory. Because it would be ongoing. It would be ongoing. It would never end. I never really thought of it that way, but I look at the same passage. Look right at the end. Look what it says. He says, verse 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But then, thanks be God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, in other words, the righteous can say that because there is no more reminder of it. It's finished. And this is why Peter says, A new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, where there is that perfect joy and peace and love that reigns. Mm. You couldn't have that with the thought that maybe below your feet or wherever, somewhere on this earth, there is people, or, or, or yeah. even somewhere else, it doesn't matter where it is, people are continually burning and being tormented. Yeah. It's impossible. That has to be destroyed in order for mm. peace to, and love to reign. Otherwise, the memory of sin and suffering will be it's there for eternity. It's for eternity. I know. And how could God wipe away every oh, tear? No, you can't. You cannot. How can God live with, live with that? It was pure in every way. It's just a terrible just, teaching. Yeah, just on a, a basic level, it, I mean, it's crazy that people would believe it for eternity. I mean, eternity is forever. Yeah. Like, it's so long. Yeah. How yeah, could that, how no, could that no, be? It it's boggles the mind to contemplate that. It really does. A terrible thing. So we were going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, well, so now, and so we looked at fire will not be quenched. We'll look at the term forever. What about eternal fire? Look at Jude 7. Jude's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, just before Revelation there. And look at the term he uses, how it was destroyed. What verse? Verse 7. Now remember, this is a, Jude's using this as an, and Peter does the same as actually, Second Peter 3, as an example of the wicked and, um, and the punishment, as people in Sodom and Gomorrah were. And of course, he's using it as an example for the last time, the last days. And look at the term he uses in verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Yeah. This is an example to us. Mm. Now, obviously, Sodom and Gomorrah is not burning today. No. Now, if eternal fire means with no end, then we should be able to go to the Middle East and see those flames and smoke still going. No, I mean, when you think of eternal fire or eternity or everlasting, what's a few thousand years? Yeah. You know, or maybe more than that actually, but nonetheless, it's nothing. And yet we know there is no smoke or fire going on there. Mm. However, there is some amazing archaeological discoveries of where Sodom and Gomorrah were and the sulfur that's still there today that they can, can burn amazingly how it burns. And it's interesting. It says here as well, the vengeance of eternal fire, meaning… Yeah. You can't fight against this fire. Like no, it's, that's, and this is that's the, it. This is the point. It's eternal fire because the consequences are it eternal. It is the result of the fire that is eternal mm. and everlasting. The result of it. There's no coming back from that. There's no other life from that. It's over. Mm. And it's actually it's hard for people to contemplate this, but in ways, in some ways, it's also mixed with mercy. The Lord says, um, "Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be." Revelation twenty two twelve. So not everyone suffers the same amount of punishment, of course, etc. But nonetheless, it's still mixed with mercy because if it was to continue forever, then there'd be no peace for the wicked as well, or, or for the righteous for either. But God's judgment is meted, meted out mm. proportionally for each individual. Yeah. And and it comes to an end. Which the fire is eternal because it has an eternal consequence. There's no coming back from it. The result of it is is eternal. Yeah. There's no more life after it. 
Again, Second Thessalonians 1, verse 8 and 9, need to, need to go there. But again, Paul is referring to the second coming of Christ and when the wicked are consumed by the brightness of his coming. And he calls it an everlasting destruction. Now, how can he term that everlasting destruction and yet the people are still alive? How do you read the opposite into the verse? You know? How can everlasting destruction mean that you're still alive afterwards to continue to burn? It doesn't make sense. So you can see how these words everlasting and eternal mm. and not be quenched, how they're in reference to the punishment. or The to, finality. To the finality. That's what they're in reference to. Mm. Yeah. It's absolute. It's yeah. not everlasting destruction if you're continually burning for eternity. Mm. The destruction continues. It's everlasting torment, which is actually the terms they use, but it's not destruction. And this verse, I think, sums it up best of all. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, talking about the fate of the wicked at that time, verses 1 and 3. It's very practical how the prophet, he actually describes it. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Yeah. Now, we left out verse 2. It was just in reference to the righteous who were delivered from all this. But here, clearly describing the, the end fate of the wicked, mm. it says they will be burnt up. And not only burnt up, it says it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Not a trace. Not a trace. Now, when you burn a, a plants in a fire, trees, root or branch, we understand what that. And you can't get more practical illustration than that. There's nothing left. Mm. And then to make you even further, make sure you don't get it wrong. He says to the righteous, "You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under your feet." And that's that's the yeah. end of the wicked. That's the that eternal fire, extinction, that everlasting fire that extinguishes them forever. Exactly. Mm. I'll be ashes under your feet. There is no more living after that. And again, I believe that's in the mercy of God to yeah. put an end to sin and suffering and death. This is the only fair way. Absolutely, for everyone and for God's justice as well. Our final passage. But if, if the fire on earth was burning forever, as some believe, look at Isaiah 66, verse 22. It's describing the new heaven and earth, as Peter does. But look what it says. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. Yeah, and this is what I was saying earlier. This is a promise from God. Peter repeats the same promise as well. And how can you have a new heaven and a new earth if on this earth there is a place of eternally burning torment that never ends? How can it be made new? Mm. No. But as Malachi was saying there, the wicked will be will return to dust and to ashes. There'll be neither root nor branch. There'll be ashes under the feet of the righteous. God's fire will totally purify this earth and everything in it. And then he'll make a new heaven and earth. Mm. And does the Bible anyways talk about how long people will, will burn? The passage I know best is the one I quoted before, Revelation twenty two twelve, where Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. Now, that's not just in reference to the righteous, but to both, every man according as his works. Do you remember we saw, we saw this passage here? We read this earlier. 20 verse 12. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books are opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written. And then it says, 
and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man, it says it a second time, every man, according to their works. Now, if the wicked are all just going to burn together and die together at the same time, in the same amount of time, why would you continually say every man according to their works? Just comparing someone like Stalin or maybe even a Hitler to just someone who was not necessarily that bad a person. Where's the judgment? How can they be both judged according to their works and yet be punished the same? That don't make any sense whatsoever. This is another doctrine. It's called the doctrine of the annihilation, which is a very controversial one. Doesn't mean one we need to go into. I mean, if you're in that category, you're going to know, sadly. But what we really want to understand is what happens when you die and what does hell refer to. For me, the most important principle, as I said earlier, is the wrong teaching of the immortality of the soul. If we believe that, people believe they'll have a second chance. And this is where Rome made so much money through indulgences during the... The Dark Ages. Yeah. And even now, like it's still going. Particularly uh, the 15th, 16th century when, when Luther, etc. and Protestantism really began. But um, with, with the myth that you don't really die, but you go to a place of torment or a place of purgatory or somewhere else, that you could pay money to have them people released from there or you could pay money for your own salvation etc. So you can see how this led to so much fear for people and held them in fear, actually. Mm. I think that's the most important thing for us to understand from these teachings is that when you die, your probation ends and your destiny is fixed. You'll either be saved or lost. Not that moment. You go to sleep. You return to the dust. But at the resurrection, either the first resurrection of the righteous or the second resurrection of the damned, and you'll be in one of those two categories. Either live forever with Christ and the saints, or you'll meet your punishment according to your works and, and perish in that eternal fire. Meet eternal extinction. Eternal extinction, yeah. yeah. And there'll be no legacy either. Your, your name and your, everything about you is forgotten. You know, us human beings, we like to hold on to, we want to leave a legacy. Or We're many, sentimental. Many, yeah, many want to. And many others want to hold on to the legacy of someone else. We, we don't want to let go of this life. We want to read about those before us and the books they wrote. And I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I mean, people can leave a wonderful legacy that we should remember. Well, for example, the, the people in the Bible that we read about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's a good thing. But what I'm getting at is they value this life too much. They don't want to let go of it. But when the new heaven and new earth is created... This old earth and, and, and the wicked that lived in it will be forgotten. We saw that in our previous study in the book of Job. We saw that like with Alexander the Great, etc., and all these great conquests and things he did, and yet he'll be forgotten. But the humblest, simplest Christian will be, he'll have a name that'll never perish. And so I think we value too much this life and, and therefore make our decisions accordingly, and we miss out on what really God wants to give us. Mm. And those who think, oh, I won't really die, I'll still have another chance, that's just a deception that, they'll, that it'll be too late when they, when they realize it'll be too late. Because you will be resurrected. You will die. You will go to sleep. You will return to the dust. And then you'll be resurrected. Either in glorified humanity to be with the Lord forever or to meet your, your judgment and eternal fire. That's really the most important principle I think we need to understand. And of course, with that, it uplifts the character of God how he'll redeem and save his people. Mm. He'll deliver his people. He'll create a new heaven and earth for them. 
and his judgment also, which demands the death of sin and sinners, will be meted mm. out. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and yeah. those who have done great wickedness will yeah. pay. Yeah. Yeah. The truth of it is fair and, and right. And Yeah. And we don't have to be fearful or, or worried about a loved one who has passed away and, and, and where they are or what's happening to them. You know, how can we enjoy heaven with that thought? Mm. How can it be heaven? Yeah. It is without a doubt the most terrible teaching there is in Christianity. And it has turned a lot of people away from God. Yeah. Some great men taught it too. Great preachers taught it, but they scared the daylights out of people with it. And that's how it was used. The eternal flames burn forever and they would preach it with fire and brimstone and scare the parishioners to to death almost. The gospel shouldn't be preached that way. Yes, we can certainly come to God because we're concerned with these things and that's the spirit that leads us and prompts us in different ways. But it's the love of God mm. that changes us and prepares us for heaven. And the Lord doesn't, like you said before, Ezekiel, you know, I have no pleasure in the wicked that the wicked should die. Turn ye, turn ye from your ways, the Lord says repeatedly. Beautiful passage, that one. Mm. Amen. That's a great verse to finish mm. with. So thank you for listening and God bless. And God bless.